Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 317, Peregrine Mission 1. I'm Gary Jordan. I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, astronauts, all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight and more. NASA is heading to the moon. Under Artemis, NASA is working with several American companies to deliver science and technology payloads to the lunar surface. The initiative is called Commercial Lunar Payload Services. In short, NASA hitches a ride on a lunar lander owned and operated by a commercial company to deliver unique science experiments and technology demonstrations that we've been dying to test out on the face of the moon. Launching to the moon this month is a mission called Peregrine Mission 1. It's a commercial mission from the company Astrobotic out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, using their lunar lander called Peregrine. It'll lift off on United Launch Alliance's Vulcan Centaur rocket on its maiden flight and is landing on the moon to deliver stuff, science and technology, a lot from NASA, but a quite a number of experiments from commercial industry and universities. On this episode, we tied in remote with the CEO of Astrobotic, John Thornton, and NASA Deputy Manager for Commercial Lunar Payload Services, Ryan Steffen, to talk about this mission ahead of its launch and landing on the moon, diving into the lander, the mission profile, and of course, the science and technology aboard. With that, let's find out about the Commercial Lunar Payload Services mission, Peregrine Mission 1. Enjoy. John and Ryan, thank you so much for coming on Houston. We have a podcast today. Thank you so much for having us. It's an exciting time in space, getting ready for our, our launch. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. I really look forward to the, today's discussion. Yeah, seriously, a lot happening, and it's, it is very busy times, and, uh, you know, especially around the moon. So to be actually be saying that out loud, that we're going to be talking about this mission to land on the surface of the moon is, is quite spectacular. This is something that is quite unique, uh, this commercial lunar payload services. Uh, a commercial lander, there's loads of payloads and interesting science and demonstrations on this uh, on this spacecraft. And I know you guys have been working really, really hard to get prepared for this moment. Um, but I wanted to pull back and really get our audience to understand just what this mission is by first getting to know you. John, as the CEO of Astrobotic, um, I can I can only imagine how your journey began to get you so close to launch, right? I, I guess what was once a dream is now so close to reality. But if you don't mind just giving a brief synopsis of what led you really to this moment ahead of launch of, uh, of Peregrine. It's been quite a journey. We, we got started 16 years ago, so um, I joke they were a 16-year overnight success. Um, it's been a, a long, long, long hard road. I mean, we, we got started uh, around the time that NASA was canceling the prior lunar uh, constellation program. And here we were in Pittsburgh building a, a business to go to the moon. Um, that wasn't supposed to work. Um, but uh, 16 years of, of <laughs> just trying to show what we can do and building up the case and um, selling payloads. And, and then uh, our, our real breakthrough was when NASA came in with the CLIPS program and opened up the opportunity to buy larger uh, payloads that, that completed our manifest. And here we are standing on the precipice of something we've that's really been a dream for a long time coming. It's my, my entire professional career uh, has led up to this moment. So I'm just so excited that we are now finally at the moment where I can say we are launching this month. 
really true. I mean, this, but it's such an interesting dream, right? I want to, I want to start a company, and I want to, you know, I want to go to space. I wonder, you know, when that dream was first being realized. Just, you know, going from a concept, an idea, to really starting a company with with people, with contributors that are actually building towards this goal, this mission. I wonder, you know, what what drove you to of all of all the ways you could have participated in spaceflight to start a company. Yeah, I mean, we were coming out of uh, Carnegie Mellon. I had finished my bachelor's and master's degree in mechanical engineering, and I, I met a professor named Red Whitaker who was starting up a team to compete for a thing called the Google Lunar X Prize, which was to be the first to go to the moon, drive 500 meters, send back pictures and video. Um, no one ended up winning that prize, but it actually ended up being a great platform to start the conversation and to um, build up some momentum toward um, toward making some early payload sales and starting to, to build the case for, for why that would make sense. Um, but I can tell you that um, starting head up, we, we got a lot of funny looks and people certainly laughed at us along the way, um, quite literally and, and to our face along the way. Um, so it's been been challenging road and uh, and, and really it was um, when NASA uh, restarted its moon program uh, in the prior administration, um, there were some visionaries inside of NASA that really saw um, what could be done with the commercial opportunity. Um, and I think they created a, a fantastic program with CLIPS and uh, it, it, we're going back to the moon in a very, very big way. And I'm, I'm just so thrilled and honored to be a part of that and to, to have one of the first launches of that program. Yeah, it's wonderful. You reference CLIPS, Commercial Lunar Payload Services. Really, NASA wants stuff on the moon, so how do we get there? And it's and it's this very interesting way. Ryan, that's where where you are a part of. You're you're helping with this initiative with the uh, Commercial Lunar Payload Services. And um, if you'll, I guess, start off by kind of describing what that is. But really, what I'm what I'm looking for, Ryan, is uh, a little bit about how you got to where you are. Yeah, of course. Um, I've been with CLIPS basically since the inception of it. Uh, I've worked for NASA for almost 20, or a little bit over 20 years now uh, in various roles in terms of project program management and, and as a thermal analyst in the very beginning. Um, and my, you know, my path to CLIPS has been circuitous. I've worked, like I said, many different projects and programs, but uh, I got involved because I had gotten asked to help lead the development of about a dozen or so payloads uh, in preparation for this CLIPS project. And so I got involved in the payload development and then I've just kind of worked my way into a, a slightly different role in CLIPS where I'm both the payload integration manager for this particular mission, uh, but I'm also the deputy project manager for CLIPS. And so, like I said, I've been involved with Astrobotics since this initial award, which was made uh, in the middle of 2019. You know, and here we are about four and a half years later, uh, ready to launch this mission to the moon. Yeah, and <laughs> I mean, that is not a small number of payloads, Ryan. And I think it's really telling to just show because because I think this is what uh, what John was alluding to earlier is, you know, you know, uh, and is um, you know why build a company to go to the moon? I think really what it, what you're alluding to is there's there's a lot of different things that we can send to the lunar surface. Yeah, yeah and we're seeing that so. kind of breakdown on our first mission. I mean, it, there's some big ones and some small ones in that. <laughs> uh, we've got hundreds of, of folks that have been a part of our DHL moonbox program. Um, and then there's been a, a smaller number of larger payloads, um, CLIPS in particular, sending uh, payloads up to the surface of the moon. Um, it really is uh, amazing to see the, the wide, diverse um, approaches to, to going back. Sometimes it's science, sometimes it's exploration, sometimes it's about a commercial experience or marketing. 
Um, we've seen a lot of folks that just want to put their name up there or send a message um, or a, a time capsule of some kind. Um, it's uh, it's really interesting, and I think we're just seeing the very beginnings of, of a broad new uh, industry for the moon, and and the demand for for payloads is large and small. Um, so it's it's quite interesting to see, and I think we're still at the very very beginnings of of the industry. And um, I'm just so thrilled that our nation is embracing it. We're taking a leading role, um, and uh, I think commercial approaches like the Clips program is the right way to foster that industry and build it up into the powerhouse that it needs to be tomorrow. Yeah, and I wonder. I don't think that was always the case, right? We have this. Uh, we have this idea. All right, let's get these these payloads, these these scientific experiments, these demonstrations. Let's get them on the lunar surface. How are we going to do that? And so, so Ryan, if you'll give us sort of a little bit of history on. You said you've been involved with it since the beginning. Just you know, when coming up with solutions. Okay, how exactly do we do this? What was the process that led us to landing on? Why don't we involve commercial industry? Yeah, so it's really modeled on a terrestrial delivery service, um, you know, not unlike, you know, UPS or FedEx. And so the idea kind of evolved from that is how can we apply that model uh, to delivering science payloads and technology demonstrations to the lunar surface uh, in support of future human exploration of the moon? And, and so it, it largely came out of that. And so the, when we made our very first awards, again, it was in the m middle of 2019, um, we went out and said, hey, we have these payloads available. I think at the time we had 15, I think it's about 15. We had 15 payloads uh, that we wanted delivered to the moon that would perform different types of science, uh, different investigations. Um, and also some of them were technology development uh, experiments. And so we went out with the competitive solicitation and asked uh, our existing vendor pool um, who could deliver these payloads uh, to interesting locations on the moon. And and that first award, we in that first uh, com competition, we made two awards. Uh, one was this one to Astrobotic and the other one was to Intuitive Machines. And so, you know, fast forward, like I said, about four and a half years later, and Astrobotic is prepared to deliver five NASA payloads uh, to the moon with a total mass of about 15 kilograms. Nice. Yeah, so that's that's this is um, exactly what we're going to be leading into. Is this is this Peregrine Mission One, John? I wonder though, you know, when 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 Ryan's talking about this solicitation, you're building a company, you're you're you know getting some customers, some clients, you're working to build, uh, you know, um, uh, spacecraft and and technologies, and then this solicitation comes out. Hey, we're NASA here. We want to send stuff to the moon. What made you want to you know as as part of with Astrobotic get into the lunar deliveries game? I mean, at that point, it, it was a no-brainer when it came out. I mean, that, that was the business we had been trying to build since 2007. Um, and to have that come out in 19 and, and uh, be able to compete in that, that was the dream. That's, what, that's, that's all we could dream of is just having one shot, having a chance to, to show that we could do it. Um, and, of course, now we have that chance and we're standing right on the edge. Um, it, along the way, I mean, building a, a space business in a place that isn't used to space. Um, Pittsburgh is, is, is a new player in the space industry. Uh, to be able to build a business here, it, it relied on just enough people believing in us along the way at every stage, whether that was a customer coming in and believing in us, whether it was a, a part of a, a new tech contract that, that believed in us as a company um, or a, a, an angel investor coming in. Uh, and in this case, when Clips came in and said, we, we believe in you guys, um, it, that, it was the sum of all of those people uh, that made this possible. And it, and it truly was right on the edge of, of a knife all the way along there. And, but um, but it's, it's really a testament to the people that believed in us along the way because there were just so many 
that doubted it. And somebody said, well, how could you possibly do what only superpowers have done before? Um, and yet here we are. And this is just the first of many missions that we have under Clips. Um, so it's a, a dawn of a new era. And it's so exciting that, um, that we have some, some true visionaries at NASA that recognize that opportunity and we're willing to take that risk with us and, and believe in it. Um, and uh, we're about to make some history. Yeah, I can only imagine the difficulty of trying to, you know, prove your prove something that hasn't necessarily been a model for in the past. It's 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 sort of new in its own way. So, Ryan, going over to you, I was thinking, you know, when as you know, um, John is is working on, um, you know, this this new this new idea. Of course, NASA coming up with solutions decides to go to the commercial industry route. Decides to go this new route, new landers, um, new capabilities. I wonder, as NASA. You know what? What's the level of involvement in terms of uh, you know working together, collaborating, setting requirements uh, for? Hey, we want this stuff. Here's what we need to get that stuff to the uh, to the lunar surface. I wonder where we come in as a team to accomplish this mission. Yeah. So yeah. So that that's been one of the more interesting things of this because I had described it to you as though you know we wanted this to kind of be modeled after a terrestrial delivery service, right? So when you give your package to the delivery service, you're you're pretty much hands off with an expectation that on the other end the package gets delivered. And we had we we intend to apply that similar model to these task orders uh, of which Astrobotic is performer on two of them. Um, and that's one thing that we've kind of struggled with, right? Because we NASA, we have extensive experience in the development of spacecraft and you know a lot of successful both human and science missions. And so it's been it's been a learning experience for us to try to understand how to provide guidance where appropriate, but also let these companies you know bring innovative and unique and, and interesting approaches to the development of spacecraft. And so I think through this process, I think it's really been synergistic in that. We, NASA, and we CLIP specifically, we've learned a lot by watching these guys perform. And then similarly, I think that we've been able to provide some of our experience and our lessons learned and provide that to our different vendors as they perform these task orders. Uh, and then it's interesting to watch them come up with more efficient, streamlined ways to apply those different processes. Yeah, and being so close and working together over those years, right? And of course, that that sort of evolves. John, I know your your company uh, had significant growth just over the past couple of years. Just uh, you know, in order to meet these needs, in order to because you have this is we're going to be talking about uh, PM one. We're going to be talking about Peregrine Mission one. But you guys have stuff coming forward, like you said. So you're you're growing your your team on the in the Pittsburgh side. Absolutely, our partnership with NASA over the last uh, four years has really been fruitful and we've seen explosive growth. We've gone to, to less than 20 people, up to 250 people uh, at the organization across two sites in Pittsburgh and Mojave. Um, and our focus in growing that has been to build out the experience level and combine that with just some raw, amazing talent. Um, so while the company Astrobotic has yet to fly space missions uh, in, in space and we're coming up on our very first one, the people who work at Astrobotic are veterans of the industry and have flown many space missions before. So we're um, mixing uh, the new and, and the, uh, uh, the experience together in a new way um, to try to uh, forge a new path for this new frontier for lunar delivery. Perfect. 
Well, let's get into how it works. Let's let's start talking about this mission. Peregrine Mission 1, right? This is the first one, Ryan, you mentioned up top of as part of the commercial lunar payload services, two, um, two companies were awarded, Astrobotic being one of them. John, on your team, you know, you're coming up with solutions and, and pitches in order to say, hey, this is what we're going to, this is our solution to bringing NASA payloads and other payloads as well. We're going to talk about those as well to the moon. And you guys uh, have the Peregrine Lander. Can you talk a, a a little bit about this piece of technology. Well, Peregrine is our, our delivery truck. It's the vehicle that's going to be launched on a launch vehicle uh, directly to translunar injection. And, and it's, it is uh, from there a spacecraft going out to the surface of the moon. It goes, uh, every phase of the mission is done on board with the spacecraft itself. So we're single stage all the way out to lunar orbit, all the way down to descent uh, and operating down on the surface itself. Um, it is a power station, it is a communication station, it is a, a payload platform. So we are enablers of our customers. So whether that's science, exploration, or marketing, um, or, uh, or just pure uh, technical uh, demonstration, we, we, we see all kinds on our, on our platform. So Peregrine is, is the delivery truck that makes all that happen. That's right. So yeah, it is, and how you described it is perfect. It is is not only does the complicated thing of taking a spacecraft from Earth and landing in this in this location on the Moon, but ultimately you are a service provider. You have to the 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 goal is is not just getting the lander on that surface, but getting the interesting science and payloads on that surface. And they have needs too. Pa you said powered communication, right? So it's it is the it is the one stop shop hub for ultimately when they land. And that's that's exactly what happens. They land. That's where that's the location where it is. It's not a rover, um, but it provides whatever the payload needs are uh, as part of the the full service of this commercial lunar payload. You got it. Perfect. All right. So you could have picked anywhere on the moon. Not anywhere, but you, you, there's a lot of different interesting places on the moon to to land. You guys st decided on the Bay of Stickiness, and I purposely say that because um, I think I'm going to butcher the name, but I'll go ahead and attempt it now. Is is uh, Sinus uh, Viscus? Uh, vi see, I already knew I was going to butcher it. Viscus Viscositatus. Uh, maybe you guys can can help me out a little bit, John. What's so interesting about uh, about this location? Well, the most interesting thing about it is that our customers wanted to go there, um, and that that in this case it was it was Clips and NASA. Um, it's, uh, it's it's near an interesting uh, formation called the Grundheisen Domes, and it's going to uh, provide some interesting insights with the combination of sensors that that are flying with us. Um, and uh, really, for us, our primary objective on this first one is to land successfully. Um, and after that, we want to go where the, the payloads want to go, where the customers want to go. Uh, and, and in this case, that, that was NASA that directed us toward this site. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, when it comes to this site, right, there, we're, we're talking about the, just the grand scheme of things. This is not this is not a South Pole location. This is on the this is on the Earth-facing side of the Moon. We got the you know we got Sun. We got communications. Uh, how, how's the terrain? Is it is it relatively rocky or is it nice and smooth? What's what are some of the considerations for for this particular site? When it, and I and guess I guess what I'm getting at is really the operations and of of landing safely and then and then ultimately delivering that that wonderful data from those payloads back to earth yes this is a, a near side location and that's really critical because that means we can do direct communication to to earth ie we do not need a, a relay satellite um, this first mission and these first clips missions in general need to be as simple as possible because flying to the moon is already hard 
uh, and we can layer on additional capability as we we prove ourselves and build that up in 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 the out years. Um, so this first one is a relatively easy landing site. It's fairly wide open, um, as far as we can tell, uh, fairly benign from a hazard uh, perspective from slopes and rocks. Um, but it still is an interesting location for for our, our uh, science and and uh, payloads that are attached to the vehicle. So it's really trying to find that sweet spot of getting the mission done for the for the customer, uh, but also making sure that the the hardest part of the mission um, isn't made harder by by trying to go to a, a really complex site. Yeah, exactly. Especially on the on the first go, right? Of course, as we as we refine the technologies, you know, the things we, we can maybe try new things. But that it's it's that perfect blend, at least for for this first go around. So Ryan, I know you came from the payloads world, right? Obviously worked your way up and and now have a management position at, at commercial lunar payloads as well as the payload integration. But there's some interesting stuff on uh, on the Peregrine, and so there's there's a lot to go over. But Ryan, why don't we start with you and some of those NASA payloads? Um, there's there's I think five. Yeah, that's right. There's uh there's five NASA payloads on this mission. Um, and uh, they kind of they kind of range. Uh, some of them are really science focused to look at the composition of the moon and, and any volatiles. And then you know some are forward leaning into some of our human exploration programs. So the first payload that we have is called the uh, linear linear energy transfer spectrometer or LETS, uh, and that's a that's basically a radiation sensor that will map the radiation exposure uh, both in transit to the moon and then on the surface of the moon, uh, which will help provide data for future human. Uh, missions to understand what the radiation exposure might be during those missions. Uh, and then there's a suite of science experiments or science instruments. Um, I'm not going to get into a long form name, but the first one is called Nervous, um, which is a near infrared. So basically what that one will do is that will look at uh, any kind of carbon dioxide or methane that comes off of the lunar surface. And then we'll also be able to uh, accurately map the temperature of the regolith on the moon at this particular location as we proceed through the lunar day. Uh, the next one is called a neutron spectrometer system or NSS, uh, and that will look at water ice near the surface. So that will have the ability to look at any uh, presence of water that might be at that particular location. And then the other thing that that will do is that's going to be an instrument that we fly on future missions to the lunar south pole where we do expect to see uh, water ice, uh, specifically a mission, an upcoming mission to deliver a NASA rover to the moon that Astrobotics also going to execute for us and NSS will be on that mission. Uh, the, the fourth one is called PITMIS, um, which is a partnership with ESA, actually, the European Space Agency, uh, where they helped uh, develop that instrument, where they provided the actual science instrument, uh, where, and NASA kind of developed a housing for that. Uh, and that's going to look at the lunar exosphere after descent uh, over the course of the day, will help understand the release of any volatiles. Uh, and then the last one is a laser retroreflector array. And basically what that is, is that's a, it's basically a a payload that consists of different mirrors, mirrors at different angles that you'll be able to laze uh, from lunar orbit to accurately and precisely uh, document the location of that particular instrument and therefore Peregrine. Uh, so that's the full suite of NASA payloads that are on this first mission. Wonderful. Yeah. And so so there's a lot, there's an interesting mix here. And I wonder if you can help to break it down because some of them sound like very much like a, like science and, and maybe even technology demonstration. You mentioned the NSS, right? Like, you know, making sure that this technology is ready for the water ice, very, very science driven. 
I wonder if there are operational considerations as well when it comes to some of these payloads, right? So you talk about lunar radiation, some of them mapping temperatures of uh, of some of the dust or some the, the landing site, right? I wonder if not only this provides some scientific value, but perhaps uh, a better understanding of the surface to to plan for better, more successful, more precise landing operations and perhaps surface operations uh, for Artemis. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question. So so I had I had referenced a, a future mission that Astrobot is actually also performing to deliver a NASA's developing developing a rover called Viper, mm-hmm. and that's going to be delivered to the lunar south pole. And that particular rover. Um, is going to last for about 100 Earth days at the Lunar South Pole to map um, water at the Lunar South Pole. And two of the instruments that I had mentioned on this first mission, uh, NERVUS and NSS, will also fly on that Viper mission. So it's interesting because the execution of these payloads on the lunar surface will help mitigate some risk for that Viper mission. But you asked an interesting question that, that is broader because Astrobotic, through this first mission, is going to gain valuable experience on mission operations, not only in transit, but also what's extremely difficult is actually descent and landing softly on the lunar surface. And so Astrobotic will be given, will have an opportunity to demonstrate their system, apply and apply lessons learned to our upcoming mission that will be a precursor to the Artemis missions. That'll be extremely, extremely important, right? And and I think what's nice is that we're talking about something that is so near term. This is coming up very, very soon. And to have that insight to plan for Artemis is just going to be absolutely spectacular. You know what I like about this mission as well, our Peregrine Mission 1, is we just talked about five NASA payloads, but John, you and your team have been working to to l- look at and attract and talk to customers uh, for getting interesting science payloads uh, on this mission, and, and you guys have quite a number of non-NASA payloads that are on this, both U.S. and international. There's a lot to highlight here. We don't have to necessarily go through them all, but I know there's a rover. Um, I know you guys are working with uh, elements in the Pittsburgh area. You talked about building up Pittsburgh as as a place for um, for uh, our space and the space community. So getting more organizations involved in that. Can you talk about some of the highlights from the non NASA payloads? Absolutely. We've got fifteen or so non NASA payloads, and I think what's most exciting there is that we've got six nations other than the U.S. flying with us that will touch down on the surface of the moon with us for the very first time. Um, I think that's an amazing storyline, and, yeah. and I'm very proud to be a part of that. And it's fantastic that that is because of the leadership of NASA and building up this capability domestically that we're able to bring the rest of the world with us. Um, one of those payloads is the Mexican Space Agency, um, fairly modest-sized agency, but now they're going to be potentially, um, you know, the, among the top, you know, fifth nation to land on the surface of the moon with us and operate payloads. Uh, that, it's incredibly amazing and exciting. They're, they're actually going to be deploying five pay, uh, five robots out to the surface in a, in a really cool catapult payload uh, and doing some co-location on the surface as a tech demonstration. Um, the other end of the spectrum, we've got a, a payload from the country of Nepal. Um, one of the poorest countries on Earth is going to the moon with us. Um, we have partnerships with the schools of, of the area around Mount Everest. Um, that are sending some artwork. And as as part of the, the capstone of this, they're actually going to be bringing a piece of Everest and sending it to the surface of the moon. And that comes full circle because there was an, actually an ast- a NASA astronaut who climbed Everest with a piece of the moon rock. Um, and uh, I guess we're just trading some rocks there. Um, but I think that's incredibly uh, uh, important for, for that nation and symbolic of, of really about making space accessible to the world. 
Um, some other ends of the spectrum is, is Pittsburgh, as you mentioned. Um, Pittsburgh is not a traditional space location in, in the country. I mean, you think of space, you think of Houston, you think of uh, L.A., San Francisco, Florida. Um, Pittsburgh is not in that list, but we want to change that. Um, it's an opportunity for us to be an ambassador to the region, um, to show a whole new population that, you know, you talk about space and they look at you funny, um, that, yeah, space is a $474 billion industry that you can be a part of, too. Um, helps get more congressional support um, and uh, opens up more support nationwide for for our space program. So we're we're very excited to be the the ambassadors to space to our region. And as part of that, we've got a payload from Carnegie Mellon University, one of the state's premier universities, and they're sending a rover up to the surface of the moon that notably was built by students, um, completely built by by undergrad and grad students at Carnegie Mellon. Uh, and that will deploy and, and drop and drive away from the lander. Uh, and notably, uh, hopefully it works um, and goes really, really well because it's actually one of the only ways we can get a picture, a selfie of the, the lander itself after landing. Um, so that's uh, an incredibly exciting payload to, to be watching on that one. Um, so it's really, it's, it's remarkable, the creativity and the different approaches that uh, all these different nations have um, whether it's technology demonstration or, or creating a time capsule, there's a drink company in Japan, for example, that's creating a time capsule with hundreds of thousands of children from Asia and putting it in a powdered form of their drink that they could mix with moon water one day. Um, it's just, uh, it, it's remarkable to see what people come up with when you show them that it's possible to, to go to the moon on a, on a relatively affordable uh, price point. Um, and I think we're just seeing the beginnings of it. I mean, we're seeing the people that believe in it before it's actually happened. Um, and I think we're going to see a whole new wave of, of new creative approaches and even more money um, going in this direction when, when we see these landings and we see the, the fruits of those, those, uh, those outcomes in, in science and exploration and, and inspiration and uh, marketing uh, worlds. Yeah, you know, I think um, this is a really interesting point to, to hone in on is, uh, is you know, we, we were talking initially about uh, we have, you know, all these different payloads that want to go to the moon. But to show and to demonstrate even on this first go around right with one of the first one of the first missions as part of this initiative to land on the moon that really just setting us off on the right tone that uh, as part of this uh, there is not an exclusive opportunity that this is a very inclusive method of getting countries um, you know stakeholders involved in um, being on the moon and being a part of spaceflight. And you talked about, you know, even some of the poorest countries have opportunities uh, through this particular method, really just getting this as a, as a world event. And I think that's really strong because I think the important, an important thing to stress here, really what I'm getting to is this is not meant to be just sort of a one and done opportunity. Clips uh, is a part of an initiative, the commercial lunar payload services to really increase that interest. If there's interest, then there's all their customers, and then we can get to the moon more often. And maybe, just maybe, Ryan, we can see, you know, a, a lot of those payloads that you were working on to go on the surface because it's part of a robust industry with a lot of demand. And I'm sure you're seeing that on both sides. John, Ryan, I'm sure you're seeing the just on this mission, right? there. I'm sure you had to solicit and get people on board with this opportunities, but because we're so close to launch, I'm sure you're seeing a significant amount of interest. Yeah, we definitely are seeing an, an uptick on that. Um, but, but you know, speaking frankly, I think there still is some skepticism in the world. We need to show successful mm. landings. 
Um, we, we've talked about this for a long time. We, we've uh, you know taken some bets on this with the Clips program as, as a nation. Um, now it's time to, to show. Uh, now it's time to show results. And, uh, and that, that, I think, is going to be really opening up the next wave of opportunity. Um, but one of the things in particular I'm really excited about that this accessibility opens up is it changes the game for our, for our nations and, and even the world's scientists. Traditionally, for, for space missions, it's not uncommon to go an entire career with maybe one chance to fly a mission uh, anywhere in our solar system. This affords an opportunity for scientists to go back again and again and again. Um, if we are seeing CLIPS missions that land at least once a year, probably two, maybe even three times a year, depending on the cadence, um, that's that's an incredible opportunity for, for our, our nation's scientists to understand the moon uh, and to understand hopefully the next step, which is how do we use the resources on the moon in meaningful ways to, to further space flight, further our exploration of the solar system and and uh, improve life back here on Earth. Yeah, Ryan, thinking from the from the NASA perspective, really, because I know I know you're working on a lot of different payloads, and there's a couple on here. But you know what John's alluding to is this: we get to go again, and as part of going again is more science, right? And so, you know, when when you think about what is success for Eclipse, you know, and and of course, you know, we're getting off, and and this is the first mission, right? So so the idea is to build something uh, is 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 we're trying to have a proving ground and build something that is sustainable. But really, when you think about a, a sustainable future um, from Eclipse perspective, from a NASA perspective, what does that look like? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, that's exactly what we want, right? We we want a world in which companies, U.S. companies are regularly going to the moon and routinely going to the moon and that we, NASA, we can continue to develop interesting and compelling science payloads and we can basically just hitch a ride on an already existing mission. You know, we've, we've made about 10 awards to date in the Eclipse uh, project and for the most part we've been the anchor tenant we, we've carried the majority of the cost we at being nasa uh, but we do envision a world where these companies become more and more capable and this commercial marketplace kind of opens up and that these companies are regularly going to the moon and we're able to say hey we understand that you're going to this particular location we have a science payload that could perform compelling science there can we can we give this to you an affordable price point so that these scientists can continue to explore the lunar surface driven by this commercial model? And that's really the ultimate goal of CLIPS is to not be that anchor tenant, right? It's just to, to take advantage of these missions of opportunity uh, to allow for more science. Right. And seeing the interest now just on Peregrine Mission 1 is, uh, I think, a step in the right direction, just seeing how many different participants there are from commercial, university, international, U.S., um, it, it's quite diverse. So, all right, let's talk about uh, Peregrine Mission One. Uh, let's let's go to the very beginning. Um, you know, John, I think uh, what, what how this starts is it starts. We have a new spacecraft on a new rocket. Uh, your guys are launching on a ULA Vulcan Centaur uh, to kick off the beginning of the mission. That's right, and uh, a lot of historic firsts will happen on that launch. Yeah. Um, if if if, uh, if this was a traditional approach to going back to the surface of the moon, you'd probably see a traditional launch that has launched many, many times and, and has a great uh, track record of success. Um, but this is not that. This is a world where we operate under a firm fixed price contract that is um, small compared to what uh, historically uh, these missions cost. And in order to do that, we had to be creative. And one of the creative solutions was to go on a flight that uh, that's going to be one of the first flights of the Vulcan launch vehicle, United Launch Alliance Vulcan launch vehicle. Um, so that afforded us uh, a good price point to get on the ride. 
Um, it takes a lot of energy to get a spacecraft of this scale to uh, translunar injection, so we needed a lot of the capacity. Um, and United Launch Alliance has a, a long history of success. Uh, the, the vehicle itself has a new name, um, Vulcan, but the, uh, it's actually based mostly on the Atlas V vehicle, a very successful storied vehicle. Um, that's what gives us comfort and the fact, of course, that, it, that it's ULA and they've, they've got a long history of success. Um, so yes, we, we start on that launch and uh, it's an instantaneous launch to get, get right into translunar injection. Um, so once we're deployed, we're going to be close to the, to the Earth proximally, but on a trajectory that's out towards the surface of the moon. And then it's our job from there to do trajectory correction maneuvers along the way to make sure we're lined up just right with lunar orbit. And then we descend down into lunar orbit, a, starting with a high orbit, and then a medium orbit and a very low orbit. Uh, and then we uh, begin our descent, which is about one hour of autonomous, nail-biting, thrilling descent uh, down to the surface uh, that will ultimately end in a successful uh, soft landing. Very good. Now, the operations, right? Of course, uh, launch is just the beginning, like you said, on this on this rocket uh, the United Launch Alliance um, has and is, is going to be demonstrating as part of this mission. You guys have uh, part of it, you know, part of the of, of successfully getting to the moon is the operations team. And I think what's interesting is this, the ride is, I think, about a month, right? Depending on the, the launch date, you're looking at about a month transit uh, to get from the surf from Earth to um, to the moon. That's right. That's that's the time between launch and actual landing down on the surface. And now um, the way our trajectory takes about 12 days to transit most of that distance. Um, the bulk of the time is actually spent in lunar orbit waiting for the local lighting conditions of our landing site to be correct. I.e. We, we are waiting for local sunrise at our landing location. Um, so we have to wait for the sun to come up. Uh, the moon does uh, take about 28 days to to spin around and have a full lunar day. Um, so that's why we we do loiter in lunar orbit for a little while, waiting for the sunrise. Um, uh, but uh, but yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be exciting. Um, and uh, the good news along the way is we're gonna learn a lot about the spacecraft uh, during the cruise. Uh, when we're firing the system for the first time, when we're operating in space for the first time with all of these uh, these systems. Um, we'll be doing checkouts, and uh, we're going to learn a lot about the spacecraft before the critical maneuver of landing on the surface of the moon. We're going to understand the, the nature of our engines. We're going to be able to tweak and refine our GNC algorithms as we come in. Um, so that uh, that first transit phase is really important. Very good. Yes, very yeah, that exactly. And you have time to do it, right? You have the time to check out all the systems, to look at and, and just make sure you're ready for those operations, like you said, which are critical. You said it's an autonomous operation. Once you get into descent, an hour long to get through the unpowered descent, all the way to terminal descent um, to actually land on the surface. What can we, the viewers, expect to see as part of, you know, we're going to be tuning in. I know, I know we're working together on covering and, and, and broadcasting these operations. What can we expect to see as part of these operations, these very critical ones? Well, the first ones we're going to be um, separating from the launch. So it's going to be an exciting launch day down in Florida. Um, probably some awesome video coming out of that. Um, uh, you're going to see some awesome celebrations of people. Um, that that vehicle has been in development for a very long time. Um, this is the, the first opportunity for that flight. Um, and to take a flight to go all the way out to the moon, the, the moon no less. Um, it, it's uh, audacious and, and exciting. Um, and then once we're in cruise, we're going to see data coming back that's going to um, be able to refine that spacecraft model as we're going out. Um, but the, the real big exciting moment is going to be the landing. Mm -hmm. We're going to have gathered in 
in our conference room overlooking uh, the uh, mission control site right here in Pittsburgh. Uh, we're going to be gathered there with um, uh, executives of the program and, and VIPs from our state uh, and local area. I mean, I can't tell you how excited Pittsburgh and Pennsylvania is. We just had the, the mayor and the governor of the, the state here. Um, and uh, they were just gushing uh, that that Pennsylvania now has an opportunity like this. Um, it, it's just it's a big deal for for a state that and a region that um, was strong in steel and and had uh, big downturns in the in the 70s 80s to be able to rebirth itself in the way it has and now become a, a tech um, industry leader. Uh, and now have an opportunity to put a big exclamation point on that and get into space and, and lead our nation back to the moon. So you're going to have a lot of really excited faces looking looking through the glass, watching every every moment of of the uh, of the drama uh, unfold. And then you're going to see some really uh, really really impressive, capable engineers at, at the kiosks and and, and the uh, or the desks, um, watching every scrap of data come in. Um, trying to assess spacecraft health and, and doing whatever we can possibly do to make it the most successful day we can uh, for that landing. Um, so it, it's going to be it's going to be exciting. Um, <laughs> I will be thrilled and terrified all at once because um, there, there's a lot on this mission. Um, but I but I am comforted by the fact that this is the first of many. Um, this is just the beginning. The first commercial uh, missions to to go back. Um, and the good news is that CLIPS has a whole uh, a whole array of missions set up and ready to go. I mean, you, you know, we heard from Ryan earlier today. There, there's about 10 missions that CLIPS has awarded. Um, that's really important. This is a movement, and it can't be stopped. It's just um, these are just the first ones. So regardless of the outcome, we have already learned a ton, uh, and we're going to be using that those lessons learned for our next mission and our next mission after that. Definitely. Yeah, very important. And, and the right mix of emotions for something so novel, right? And of course, as things develop and, and we refine those operations and get practice and as time goes on, you know, ideally it becomes a little less tense. You're always going to have that, but uh, but ideally as things go on and, and like you said, it's, 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 it's moving forward, we're going, it's happening. So ideally we get that. Ryan, as part of the payload um, aspect of this, right, we talked about the operations of Peregrine actually descending and landing on the moon. But in terms of the payloads and from the NASA perspective, is there moments op from an operational perspective of payload activation? Can we see these some of these being activated and gathering data as part of the transit period or descent period? Or really, are we just waiting for the moment that we touch down to go ahead and turn on the switch and start gathering some data? What, what exactly happens from the payload perspective? Yeah, so, the, you know, the payloads, um, you know, they were all designed just like you would with any spaceflight hardware. They were all designed with the, the objective of minimizing the, the required resources. So we tried to minimize mass. We tried to minimize the data return back to Earth. And we tried to minimize the power that they would require uh, while also being mindful of the unique environment that this mission, you know, requires when you're going to the moon. It, you know, you, you go through extreme thermal uh, transients where you can go from a, a very warm environment where the lunar surface is, you know, warmer than uh, boiling water to a very cold environment where the lunar surface is, you know, like liquid nitrogen temperature. So the payloads were designed with all that in mind. And uh, Astrobotic has a, has a pretty nice offering in that they are able to give us spacecraft resources in transit. So we're able to uh, do instrument checkouts in transit to try to either calibrate the instrument to understand, you know, basically a and a background absent any kind of volatiles uh, so that we can understand what the instrument performance is. 
Uh, so each instrument is going to get an in-transit um, checkout. LETS, which is the radiation sensor, that will actually obtain data during the entire transit out to the moon. So we'll be able to map what that radiation field looks like uh, in transit to moon. We do try to minimize the demands of the payloads during descent. Um, that's a, as John mentioned, that's a critical mission phase, right? So we don't want to be doing anything that would distract the lander from its primary job of trying to do a soft touchdown. So once we touch down, uh, we will have we'll give the lander an opportunity to um, uh, to commission itself to go to full power uh, during transit, and that's when they'll start to bring the payloads uh, online. So within the first say half day or so, we'll bring all four payloads up, and then they'll actually start their mission where they're performing science for the duration of the lunar day. Perfect. Yeah, so that happens relatively quickly after landing. That's good to know. Now, I know part of the whole operation here of getting from the Earth to the surface of the moon is really waiting for those those lighting conditions to, to get to where we want to. And I'm sure that's from the navigation, uh, of the guidance and navigation equipment to land on a, on a well-lit surface. But uh, I guess one, what I'm getting to is is once we land, John, um, what can we expect the, the operations of Peregrine to be in the sense that, you know, what is defining mission success of some of the payloads that are going on from the NASA and non-NASA perspectives? What's the length of the mission to properly gather the data we need? So the, the first mission of the moon and these, these first ones in CLIPS are all going to be designed for single uh, lunar day operations. And, and the real reason for that is that when the sun sets, it gets down to liquid nitrogen cold. And what frequently happens, and we saw this during the Apollo era, uh, spacecraft don't like that really cold environment. Mm -hmm. um, you might get a solder joint that breaks or any kind of coefficient of thermal expansion difference between components, something pops. Um, that's probably going to kill the spacecraft. Uh, batteries tend to not like that really cold too. Um, so these early missions, uh, and this first one in particular, is just going to operate for one lunar day. So we're landing in the morning and we're going to be operational for about 10 Earth days on the surface. So inherently the, the, the cadence of activity is, is very much accelerated, especially in comparison to say a Mars mission. Um, so as you heard, we're going to be up and operational with all of our payloads within hours of landing. Um, and we're going to be have a flurry of activity because everyone's trying to get their their payload and their science uh, missions accomplished before the sun sets. Um, now, in some cases, the payload the payload missions have been accomplished just simply by getting there. Um, and those are the payloads that are uh, like the passive ones, like uh, the re uh, laser retroreflector of NASA's. We also have time capsules on board that just want to be there. And then we've got the other end of the spectrum of, of active payloads, like the the, uh, the the payload suite that NASA is sending, the rover that's going to be dropping and driving uh, off in, into the distance. Um, every one of those payloads has their their different mission objectives. Our objective as, as the mission uh, lead here is to keep the power running and keep the comms up um, and uh, enable success for every one of the, the payloads that come with, comes with us. Perfect. Yes. 10 days. Let's get as much as we can. And there is so much to learn. And of course, I think this is this is a theme really throughout this um, this conversation is this is the first mission. Lots of interesting things, but it's really kicking off something for the future. And Ryan, you alluded to something in the towards the beginning of our conversation here is, of course, we're looking at these NASA payloads for this particular mission. But one that you mentioned is um, one of the next astrobiotic lander. It's the Griffin lander. But the payload is very important. It's one called Viper. Can you talk about this one a little? Yeah, I referenced it a little bit earlier during uh, our discussion. Yeah, so Viper is a rover that's being developed by NASA 
Uh, it's about 500 kilograms, so that's what just over a thousand pounds, um, and it has a lunar surface mission duration of about 100 days. Uh, and the primary objective is to map the lunar surface for volatiles or specifically looking for water uh, added near the lunar south pole. And so we're really excited about that mission because it's gonna perform important precursor science for the Artemis program. And as I had mentioned earlier, Astrobody is also responsible for delivering that rover to the moon. Uh, that, that mission architecture is slightly different. Um, like I mentioned, NASA's or Astrobody is delivering about 15 kilograms of NASA payloads on this first the Peregrine 1 mission. Uh, but the Griffin mission is going to deliver about 500 kilograms. So you can imagine that lander is significantly larger. Um, and it's also going to a very important location at the Lunar South Pole, uh, which is important because we think that that's where resources are available. So we're, we're looking forward to that mission uh, landing near the end of calendar year 2024. And one of the things that we're excited about on Peregrine, not only the science that will be enabled by that particular mission, but like I said, it's going to mitigate and um, address some of risks that will help Griffin be more successful at the end of the calendar year. Yeah, and that's and that's where I wanted to go to next is uh, you know thinking about clips and how this evolves, right? Uh, in terms of astrobotic, John, you know this is not just uh, you're not just producing Peregrine and Peregrine Ops. You have different landers for different needs, and of course, Ryan alluded to this: is Peregrine is a smaller lander, but Griffin. That when we're when we're talking ahead to the Griffin lander, this is the uh, just an, another class of lander to land larger payloads. And he mentioned to the lunar the lunar South Pole, which of course is a very challenging area to land in. You got heavy shadows, you got permanently shadowed regions. There's there's a lot of obstacles in the way, but that's the next thing you guys are working on is is the Griffin lander. That's right. Griffin is an incredibly exciting mission. Uh, that is that is the big leagues of, uh, of of lunar exploration and science in in this era of going back to the moon. It's um it is People, people talk about game-changing missions. This this really, truly is a game-changing mission. If we can find water at the poles of the moon, identify the quantity, composition, we can then take the first steps toward understanding if that can be a resource for the future. And that's a resource to drink. You can split it, oxygen to breathe. But perhaps most importantly, you can split water and condense it and make rocket fuel. So we could quite literally be touching the oil fields of the moon here um, that could open up the entire solar system to exploration. I imagine a gas refueling site at the surface of the moon um, that could uh, supply uh, orbiter tugs um, that can make getting to Mars and other destinations in our solar system cheaper. Imagine one day using that fuel to send resources from space back to Earth. Um, these are all made possible by this mission coming up. This is the groundwork. This is the mission that history will point to as the first mission that, that touched water at the poles of the moon um, that led to, to uh, just a massive game-changing shift in how we think about space and, uh, and how we think about settling and, and exploring and, and uh, using the resources of space for our own, own good down here on Earth. Very, very exciting times. And and I wanted to take that and sort of end with this this broader idea, right? And I think I've gotten a sense of just general excitement from the both of you just on this mission, but really on the, the broader idea, uh, not just of clips, but I think of exploration. And so, Ryan, I think we'll start with you is just, you know, you said you've been working uh, on clips since the beginning. You've worked on a number of different payloads. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious to hear your perspective on the value of lunar science and, and an in initiative like this. 
this. Why is it so important? When someone comes off, the, comes off the street and asks you, why is it important that we take these initiatives, that we push forward to explore the moon and the surface? How do you respond? Well, I mean, I think ultimately, you know, we as a human race, you know, we are explorers. Um, I mean, we've been explorers since, you know, the beginning of time. Um, and, and I think a lot of people will make an argument that the moon is kind of a jumping off point for further exploration into the solar system. And so I think that, you know, Clips, I hate to be corny, but, you know, Clips is kind of a first step or a launching point for those particular missions. Um, you know, we talked a lot about what Astrobotics doing, but, you know, it extends further beyond that, it extends into the entire industry. I, I think about it a lot as we prepared Griffin for its mission, you know, we've matured a supply chain. So, you know, there are there are people developing space flight hardware that maybe wouldn't otherwise be doing it. So, you know, those vendors are now available to say the DOD or or NASA or other NASA missions. And so, you know, it's an entire kind of ecosystem that we're developing and maturing uh, for future exploration. So, John, very similar question. You know, you, you've been working, on, you said 16 years ago started Astrobotic, obviously dreaming about it before that to actually get to that start. Now we're so close to the first mission, only thinking ahead to how this is going to evolve and change. And it's just, this is not just a one and done. We're, we're, we're pushing forward and it's a very exciting time. And you mentioned how many how many people are involved just on Peregrine, but really the, the expanding the customer base and who this is uh, for. From your perspective, um, why why do you think it's important to explore the moon? Why do you think it's important to push ourselves to do these unique and amazing things? My answer to that has has evolved over 16 years. When I first got started, I just thought it was cool to go to the moon, and, and <laughs> that was enough for me. Um, but over time, I've, I've realized um, how important and truly groundbreaking it really is. I, I believe in a future where humanity is not limited by by this earth's resources um we routinely uh have gone above and beyond in terms of extracting resources and and stretching the the, the capacity of this earth but if you look outwards and upwards starting with the moon and out into our solar system the there are vast vast quantities of resources that just blow your mind um, for the sheer scale of that. And if we can reach those and if we can harness that and bring that back here to Earth, we we can um, provide a future for for generations to come um, where resources are provided by by space um, rather than uh, digging up our delicate blue planet, the only place in our solar system or anywhere nearby that can support life. Um, and i'm I'm excited to be a part of that to build the very early foundation stones to that to that grand future. Um, and I recognize that's a long way out. Um, but uh, but we've got to start. Um, and, and I think these first steps are how we get there. And, and the moon is the natural progression of humanity's reach into space. It's refreshing to talk to you both because I'm getting this sense of, you know, not just not just being focused on this near term future, but really a lot of what drives all of the work that got us to this moment right ahead of launch um, to, to eventually land on the moon was, I think, part of a grander vision and and uh, belief and in, uh, in actually in the science and the value of of going of exploring and so hearing from you both not just on this mission but on your perspective of why we're doing this has been really enlightening and and, and kind of empowering in a way for me and I, and I appreciate both of your time um to john to ryan thank you so much for coming on houston we have a podcast and talking about not only this mission but really the inspiration for for what's to come thank you both thanks for having us it's been a pleasure yeah thank you very much 
Hey, thanks for sticking around. Really fascinating conversation with John and Ryan about all the work that went into preparing for this mission. I hope you'll tune in to NASA.gov to find the latest on the launch and landing times of Peregrine Mission 1. Not the first time we've talked about commercial lunar payload services. We kicked it off on episode 158 with an episode called Moon Deliveries, if you want to take a step back and learn uh, the program back in its infancy. But of course, you can listen to any of our podcasts at NASA.gov slash podcasts. That's where you can find our show and listen to any of our episodes in no particular order. If you want to talk to us on social media, we're on the NASA Johnson Space Center pages of Facebook, X, and Instagram. And you can use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to submit an idea for the show. Just make sure to mention it's for us at Houston. We have a podcast. This episode was recorded on December 7th, 2023. Thanks to Will Flato, Dane Turner, Abby Graff, Jaden Jennings, Nilifer Ramji, Olivia Chopla, and Audra Mitchell. And of course, thanks again to John Thornton and Ryan Steffen for taking the time to come on the show. Give us a rating and feedback on whatever platform you're listening to us on, and tell us what you think of our podcast. We'll be back next week. <laughs>